Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord will send in my name, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Our culture has embraced a message of piety that is false in that we have trivialized the spiritual aspects of Christianity to only the spiritual disciplines in such a way as our Christian faith does not touch every aspect of life, every dimension of life. And so the, the answer to that is not a flight from spiritual disciplines. For example, if you, if you approach your Bible reading in a legalistic fashion and you just can't relate to God well unless you've done your Bible reading day in, day out, the answer to that subtle slip of legalism in your heart is not to stop reading your Bible, right? That makes sense? The answer is to ask God to modify your motivations, to change the way you approach those things. And so in reacting to a Christianity which has mostly become pietism, or that is to say a faith which has been completely modified from affecting real life, affecting all of life, to only affecting the spiritual disciplines, the answer to that is a right and proper use of those disciplines, 
not a flight from them or a rejection of them. And so we've, we're in this temptation to, to kind of trivialize the, uh, the aspects of, of the, the faith, spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, reading the word, fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, uh, encouraging one another as brothers and sisters, spending time with the saints, gathering on the Lord's Day, participating in communion or the Eucharist, and also it, embracing the full counsel of living as a community. The, the temptation to downplay the importance of those is all, always present in, in our context today. Uh, it, it really is always present at all times in the church, but especially when we recognize and then react to error. It is never appropriate to react to error to go off, as we've said over and over again, from one ditch through the road into the other ditch. That doesn't help you. You're still in a ditch. The, the proper way is to get on the road and to continue looking towards the horizon and moving forward. And so as Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, even before his crucifixion, he gives a teaching about what the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit's mission is in uh, facilitating the life of these disciples that he has called and drawn and and walked with. And so uh, as we approach Ascension and Pentecost, Christ intimately connects them one to the other, that his ascension is going to bring about the giving of the Spirit. He's going to go to the Father in order to ask the Father, and then the Father will send the Spirit. And so even as we're closing the, the time of Easter, Easter doesn't just terminate, and then we go back to you know, ordinary time, Easter culminates in the ascension of Christ and the giving of the Spirit, which are linked events. They're, they're done in relation to each other. Jesus ascends to the Father in order to give the Spirit and also to retain or re-receive the glory that he had with the Father. And also he goes in order to ask that the Spirit would be given. And so Jesus Christ shows us his mediatorial role. That is, he goes to the Father to ask for the Spirit to be sent. And even though Christ is no longer present physically, he still is present and comes to the disciples through the Spirit. So we're going to look at all of John's uh, explanation of Jesus' teaching on the Spirit and his ascension as being intimately linked and directly related. Just before his trial, Christ promises to send the Spirit, and he promises to send the Spirit by way of asking the Father. And so, again, just as we've seen the last two weeks, this Trinitarian view of God's action, that God does not act alone, that is to say the Father is not doing something that the Son is not concerned about or that the Spirit is not participating in. Whenever one member of the Trinity acts, all of God is acting. And so Christ here is desiring to send a helper to be with the disciples, and so he asks the Father. And then we begin to see how the Spirit takes on that same mission. So the Spirit as helper is going to be our first point. We're going to look at very quickly just his role and what he is supposed to do as um, as people who have been affected by the charismatic renewals of the 70s and 80s and even now with the modern worship movement, the Holy Spirit's job is not to give you goosebumps. The Holy Spirit is much greater than just a spiritual uh, joy that is only found at certain times when the worship's just right and the lights are just dim enough. The Holy Spirit is a helper and he has a goal, and that is producing Christ-like character. Now, 
to say that is in no way to downplay the importance of the active presence of God. But the Holy Spirit is not just tingly feelings. The Holy Spirit causes trembling and awe and glory. And yet he also is working in you in a particular way. He is not just helping you to achieve your goals in the Christian faith. He is attempting to produce maturity in you so that you would begin to look and live like Christ. We're going to look at Christ's words on love of him and obedience being directly linked, that how they are not separate, how it's not, Christ doesn't say it's hard to disobey and still love him. He says it's impossible. It's a logical exclusion. After that, we're going to see the Spirit's mediation or making present of the nature of the Father and the Son, how Jesus says that we will come, I and the Father, we will come and make ourselves manifest to that one who believes, that is a job of the Holy Spirit. And so even as we approach Pentecost, it's right to re-examine Christ's teachings after the resurrection uh, about, about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's role in continuing the ministry of Christ, and then finally Christ's presence with the Father being done for us and for the final vindication of his teaching and work and ministry. So, Christ taught that the disciples would continue following him by the Spirit. I absolutely love, uh, there's a guy who is a worship leader who I have been deeply impacted by in the late 90s and early 2000s. His name is Jason Upton, and he is uh, one of my favorite, he he also speaks when he plays music uh, at churches. He goes around as itinerant worship leader. And uh, one of my favorite things is there's this recording of him uh, doing a dramatic reading somewhat of Philip and, and Andrew's discussion with Christ, where Christ says, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough. And and this idea that they are about to, Jesus is about to disappear, so to speak, from their sight. And yet he says, follow me. We saw this two two weeks ago when Peter was being restored to Christ. Jesus, before he ascends, right as soon as he is going to disappear from the natural realm, uh, Peter is told to follow me. You know, and and the question then is, well, how? I can't see where you're going. And so we we have to begin to understand that following Christ is not simply physically following him around any longer. When when Christ called the disciples, following him was physically following him around Jerusalem and Judea as he went through the different regions. But this following of Christ takes on a new dimension, and that is a following in nature, a following in mission, a following in purpose. And so both Peter, in, in that command of, that Christ gave to follow him, and the rest of the disciples, Jesus explains that that following would be done by the Holy Spirit, and that's the job of the Holy Spirit. Christ introduces the Holy Spirit as a helper and an advocate. And that idea of an advocate is one who comes alongside and pleads one's case. If I go to, uh, if I go to a trial and am being petitioned or asked by the judge uh, whether I'm guilty or innocent, uh, I have to enter the plea and I say guilty or not guilty. Sometimes the lawyer can say that. But most of the time, it depends on what state you're in and it depends on what kind of trial is going on. Most of the time, you say whether you're guilty or not guilty. But after that, everything that happens in the trial for the rest of the time is done by your attorney. 
And that attorney or advocate is there to plead your case before the judge and to work on your behalf. Now, in this scenario, we have the father as the judge, and the spirit is, of course, able to speak in a way that the father knows. But this idea of the spirit coming alongside and being our help, again, is not to be changed into something that's self-centered. The Holy Spirit is not in my life in order for me to achieve what I wish to do in terms of personal goals or hobbies or things that are self-directed. He, his role is to be my helper in putting to death sin and establishing righteousness. And as much as uh, possible, conform my goals, desires, and visions, vision for life in order to be like Christ. So it's not that we have to divorce all sorts of personality or aspects of life. It's that the Holy Spirit is wishing to direct all of our life in such a way that it would become in conformance with who Jesus is in his nature and his person. Though Christ is going to ascend, and in one sense he's going to depart, he says the Holy Spirit will never depart. Although Christ is about to leave their presence, he says it's a better thing that the Holy Spirit comes, and this Spirit will never depart. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not know him. One of the things that's so important as we approach Pentecost in this time of seeking the Father for yet another renewal and refreshing of the Spirit of God is to understand that you can only receive the Spirit of God because you are known by the Spirit of God and therefore know the Spirit of God. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is exclusive. The world cannot simply receive the Holy Spirit because they don't know him. And then Jesus gives a little impression of what the nature of Pentecost will be. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And here we begin to see in John's recording of Jesus' teaching that the idea of an indwelling of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the life of the believer. Brothers and sisters, this is the most holy aspect of personal faith in the Christian religion and far surpasses any other teaching or faith on the planet. In no other religion is the idea of God coming and dwelling in the believer possible. Every other religion is an attempt to conform oneself to an ultimate standard or the divine, and it is done in the nature of the flesh, the power of self-abasement, of restricting oneself, of removing appetites, of divorcing from the physical realm, or asceticism that is beating up oneself for doing sins or, or things like this. Jesus says to these group of disciples who will all betray him and fall away that the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you. This is the act and grace of God. The Holy Spirit is coming to dwell in. And so those who are still joined to the world cannot receive the Spirit. Jesus says that they know the world does not know him, but, but you know him. And so as we begin to seek out a greater outpouring of the Spirit, it comes as no surprise if we are still filled with the world, even though we may be sons and daughters of God, if we still have so much of the world in our lives that the Holy Spirit is prevented from moving, we are the ones who are dampening and quenching the Spirit. Paul warns the church not to quench the Spirit. So the question or the implication is, it's possible to quench the Spirit. 
And I think Jesus gives us a key to understanding how does the spirit take up residence in oneself. And, and we understand that pure and undefiled religion is being abstaining from the world and the world system. Now that doesn't mean the physical world. That doesn't mean you're, it's a flight from reality into the spiritual life inside us, but rather not being filled with the love of the world and the things that the world cares about. This is the inheritance of all those who have been joined to Christ, the knowledge of and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have been given a great privilege. God himself, the eternal spirit of God, would take up residence in your life and begin to transform it, healing those things which need healed, restoring those things which are broken, and bringing about maturity. He is one who is like Adam in the garden, was supposed to do cultivating and beautifying, making a place for the Father to come and walk in the cool and spirit of the day. Christ shows that the Spirit is going to move from dwelling with to being in the disciples, and he promises that though he is going to depart, the Holy Spirit will never depart, and he himself will come in the power of the Spirit. When Jesus gives this promise that I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Many people think that this is about the second coming of Christ. And I just want to submit to you that that is completely wrong. I love you, but that's completely wrong. Jesus Christ says to these disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, if it means that he will only come to them in the second return or the second coming, uh, then that simply means that they are orphans until that happens. And by extension, you and I would then be orphans. Brothers and sisters, we're not orphans. We've been adopted. And this language of adoption is accomplished in the work of Christ, which makes possible for the dispensing or the sending of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes and is titled the Spirit of Adoption. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. What, what's the opposite of orphans? those who are adopted, right? An orphan is someone whose parents are gone or out of the picture, whether they've died or are just simply not present as parents. Those orphans have a way of getting unorphaned and that unorphaning is adoption. And that is what you've been given in the father. You've been given and granted this adoption. This is exactly what the Spirit's role and job is. In Christ's cross and his coming in the Spirit, he accomplished the adoption which John begins his gospel with. If we turn very briefly to John 1, Jesus' uh, ministry is um, foreshadowed in John's gospel in verse uh, uh, 14 through 16. Sorry, I lost my place. There we go. Uh, sorry, verse 12, but all who did receive him, by the way, John 3.16 has been horribly translated for you throughout the ages. It does not say in the English, in the English it says, most of you know it as, uh, you know, God so loved the world that whoever would believe in the son. But actually in the Greek, it just means all who do believe. So there's that for you, but verse 12, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The right or power or seal or pledge to become the children of God is now accomplished by Christ. This great theme of calling 
these disciples to become brothers and sisters takes place in the cross of Christ and after that the coming of Christ in the power of the Spirit at Pentecost. The Spirit applies Christ's resurrection power to our life now. This is the very same Spirit who uh, inhabited Christ when he raised him from the dead. And Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, identifies the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of adoption. Christ is not left us as orphans, but he has come to us, even though he departs. And this is why I love the aspect of understanding the scriptures, being aided by the Holy Spirit. How can Christ leave and come to us? The only way is if it's made possible by the Spirit. Although Christ is not seen with the physical eye, we are able to see him with the Spirit. This is what Christ says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, also you will live. If there's ever two chapters to be read in conjunction with one another, John, uh, John 14 and uh, Romans 8 should really be read back to back. Paul's explaining the doctrine of the Spirit of God's movement in light of what Jesus himself taught. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so this, this idea of the indwelling or community life that Christ has with the Father, he says the Spirit will come and indwell you, and then you will know in that day when I ascend and send the Spirit by asking the Father that I really am from the Father. And so understanding the Spirit rightly, honoring him as God, recognizing his role, he actually is the very proof that Jesus himself gave for his own divinity and and, uh, mission from the Father. This is what Christ has identified as the test. How do you know that he is in the Father? It's because the Spirit is going to come and he's going to accomplish that adoption and make possible an, a spiritual sight of who he is, even though he is no longer with them in the physical realm. The giving of the Spirit is the knowledge creating evidence. It's the knowledge creating evidence. In that day, you will know. And how do we know? We know because of an experience which has happened, the Spirit has been given. In that day you will know. This is the knowledge creating evidence of the love life bond between Christ the Father and us. The only way that you know that God loves you according to Paul's doctrine in Romans 8 is that the the Holy Spirit has poured out God's love upon you. And so Christ provides an objective test in this very passage by which we know if we're walking according to the truth or if we're being deceived. And this is possible to do. This is possible for the the false Christian to believe that they are justified, believe that they are uh, approaching God, that they really love God. But Jesus gives a test and he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it's not if you love me in order to love me in order, in order to earn my love, but rather it is if you do love me, you will. It's a logical necessity. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now again, remember, Christ is about to disappear, as it were. He's about to ascend, and the disciples are then told that if they love Christ, if they truly love him, that he will make himself manifest to them. And of course, we're about to see that this manifestation is done in the Spirit. But I just want to encourage you, 
if you're thinking, if you hear these verses and just, and then say, well, how do I know if I really love Christ? How could I ever understand if I truly do love Christ based on my last week or based on my last year? I just want to encourage you that Jesus is saying this to a group of people who will completely deny and turn away from him. And we know what power Christ has to restore those who fall. Christ says, if you love me, you will keep. And the Holy Spirit is sent in order to bring that about. Without being loved by Christ, you can never truly keep his commandments to love God and love neighbor. Christ's commandments, which he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He himself told us what those commandments were, chiefly to love God and love neighbor. And it is impossible to love God unless God loves us first. This is what the gospel essentially says When it says that while we were still enemies with God, Christ died for us. There is absolutely no such thing as loving Christ while denying obeying him. You cannot simply, it's it's not that Christ said it's impossible or uh, it's difficult or it'll cause a lot of tension in your heart. He says it is impossible. If you love Christ, you will obey his commandments. And if you are not obeying his commandments, then you have not been perfected in love. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Jesus is laying the foundation for what the Holy Spirit's role will be of making manifest Jesus and testifying about him. True relational and experiential knowledge of Christ is reserved from the world. It is impossible to know who Christ is if you are divided from the world, or if you are still united to the world. The obedience that is possible, it's only possible in the new birth. And that that. Uh, ability or that understanding is only made possible to those who have been recreated after the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's mediation, therefore, is a manifestation of the action of the Father and the Son. This is, this is not something that is attempted to be accomplished in our own, but rather is done by the Spirit. To put it another way, the Holy Spirit mediates or makes presence makes present the indwelling of the Father and the Son. Jesus says, if you love me, you will be loved by my Father, and I and my Father will come and make ourselves manifest to you. And this manifestation is done in the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The dwelling in which the Father and the Son have promised to do is carried out by the Holy Spirit. And this dwelling in is part of your portion. This is your inheritance as a Christian. You are never supposed to feel as if you've been abandoned by the Father. The Holy Spirit's job is to accomplish this indwelling that the Father and the Son have promised to do for those who are in Christ. If we understand rightly, therefore, the Holy Spirit's role, we will walk in a lifestyle of direct engagement with the Holy Spirit. That is communion with the Holy Spirit that is bearing fruit. 
The communion flows from the soul and heart to affect every area of life. Proverbs 4.23, it says, look, o- look over your heart or keep watch over your heart, for from it spring all the issues of life. If you find yourself routinely entering into terrible thoughts about God, about his love for you, doubting whether he really does call you and whether Christ's atonement really was sufficient for you, if you routinely uh, think ill of your neighbor or are jealous or are filled with thoughts of envy and murder, if you are constantly hungering after things that ultimately never satisfy, then what I would submit to you is you have not routinely engaged with the Holy Spirit in such a way as to experience that manifestation of the life of the Father and the life of the Son in your heart. This is what you've been given as Christians. You've been given the opportunity and the privilege of knowing your creator and maker who is eternal and full of love for you, the one whom he sent his son to die for. And this is your only sense of purpose and worth. If you have issues of self-identity, that is, you think, I'm a terrible person, I won't ever amount to anything, then as we talked about in the first uh, half of today's service during the Sunday school hour, you are listening to a voice that is contrary to the voice of God. You have been bought by Christ. Paul says that Christ has purchased me, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that living in is done by the Holy Spirit. And so routine engagement with the Holy Spirit through the spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, reading God's word, meditating on his nature, that is the avenue towards the life of God flowing through you. A disciple with true piety, earlier we talked about false piety, a disciple with true piety honors and recognizes the precious gift of the Spirit's mediation. To not honor or recognize the Holy Spirit is to not take advantage of the fact that he has made present the life of the Father and the life of the Son. This is exactly why the Spirit was given, to make plain to you the things of God. Jesus says, all that the Father has has been given to me, and the Spirit, I believe he says this in John 16, the Spirit will come and disclose or tell you about these things. And this is not some sort of spiritual Uh, sorry, physical understanding that Christ isn't saying that you own all the things out there. He's talking about all the things that pertain to life and godliness. And so to not avail yourself of communion with God through spiritual disciplines is to dishonor the Holy Spirit's role. This is part of what it means to, to quench the Spirit, is to ignore the Holy Spirit so much that you never engage with him and never take advantage of that which has been made available to you. This is what Pentecost brings about. Pentecost brings about a sending of the Spirit in order that the Spirit would live with and remain with Christ. Here's one way that I encourage people to think about this issue, to to begin to say, have I totally ignored the Holy Spirit? Is if you are anticipating the second coming of Christ and the resurrection from the dead and the, the visible sight of Christ, although that is glorious and wonderful, if you think that that is something greater than the giving of the Spirit, then I would submit to you, you do not understand what Christ is saying. Now, I'm looking forward to that. Don't get me wrong. I think that the, the final vindication of Christ as judge of the earth will be glorious and wonderful, but you have been given that opportunity to know Christ, to know the Father now by the Holy Spirit. Understanding the Spirit's role is rightly honoring and worshiping him. 
In the Nicene Creed, which we say from time to time, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit who is worshipped and glorified. And Christians throughout the ages have understood that the Holy Spirit being co-equal with God, co-eternal, co-glorious, full of the same majesty and honor and glory, uh, is rightly worth worshipping and magnifying. And worshipping and magnifying the Spirit is a right and wonderful thing to do. When we recognize the preciousness of the Holy Spirit, we worship and glorify him. To not recognize his role, to ignore him to the point where we do not routinely engage with him, is to fall into a sin of neglect, neglecting who he is. And so the Spirit's goal is not simply to just make the Father and the Son manifest to you in a way that somewhat cleans up your life and settles some emotional issues. Those are for you in Christ. Those are part of your portion. But God wants to bring you more than just to health. He wants to make you productive. And this productivity is actually a joining with God in his mission throughout the earth. The redemptive story that we see take place from Genesis to Revelation, you have now been invited into and are being ushered into by the Holy Spirit throughout your walk as a Christian. So Christ identifies the gifting of the Spirit as God's action to continue this same redemptive work. You've now been asked to join the mission. You were at one part an enemy, you've been killed by the sword of God, and now you've been restored to life in, by the power of the Spirit, and now you've joined the army. It's, um, if you, I don't like Star Trek, but if you, if you like Star Trek, maybe this will be for you. This is like the Borg, and resistance is futile. God's God's army is assimilating, restoring, bringing to life, and causing you to become part of the Borg. John 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Christ intends to make sure the disciples know when this begins to happen at Pentecost that this is fulfilling Christ's prophecy as the greatest prophet. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the Holy Spirit's goal, is to bring into remembrance what Christ has said to these disciples. And so again, I would submit, if you think it's better to have been one of the 12 than it is today, with 2,000 years of theologians to read, then I would, not to, and of course those, I'm recognizing that those theologians have been aided by the Holy Spirit throughout the centuries. If you think it would have been better to be one of the 12 than to be a Christian today with the Holy Spirit, with now a billion plus Christians on the planet, then you don't understand what the Holy Spirit's mission is. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be reinvigorating and uh, causing you to remember those things which Christ said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. How does the world give? The world gives for two reasons. One, to accomplish flattery. If you want to curry favor with somebody, perhaps you give them some money or you give them something nice. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes the form of a bribe, or if you're in Washington, D.C., you just, you know, a very nice meal, um, or a car, or something like that. Uh, Bribes are one form of gift. That's how the world gives. The other way that the world gives is in reciprocation for gifts. So, so if you, if you receive a really great gift one year, and then this, you see this all the time at Christmas when people give things and they literally give things just so that they won't feel like they've, you know, uh, been uh, 
stealing, if you will, in this exchange. They give a, a great and expensive gift because they're expected to. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the spirit, not as the world give. I don't give it because you've earned it. I don't give it because you expect me to give it. And I don't give it in order to curry favor from you. I give it in order to bless you. Christ's gifting of the spirit is a pure gifting. It is a pure act of giving. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And in fact, Christ's gifting of the Holy Spirit is sandwiched between these two verses, the idea that Christ's peace would reign and that their hearts would not be troubled in that. So before his ascension, Christ was their teacher, but after the Holy Spirit will be their teacher. See, the Holy Spirit has continued on the ministry of Christ. Look at these things. In verse 26, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. In John's epistle, John brings up this exact same idea and he says, there is an anointing which abides in you, which teaches you all things. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. I, I From time to time, I read amazing theologians who are if not outwardly and explicitly against the action of the Holy Spirit, they're significantly downplaying the Holy Spirit's emphasis or work in their teachings or in their sermons that they give. And I would just have to wonder how much greater insight and fruit would they bear if they rightly understood the gift of the Holy Spirit and what his role is. Think about it like this. The Holy Spirit is continuing the mission of Christ. And so whatever Christ was doing, the Holy Spirit is doing. At this time, Christ was their teacher. We have four gospels filled with hundreds of sermons and teachings and parables, which Jesus says to the disciples in order to teach them about the Father. And then he says, the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. When they would get into squabbles, remember these things that would happen with the disciples? Peter or one of the other disciples would often debate that they were the greatest and that they were the best givers and the best workers and they're going to be the greatest in the kingdom and they're comparing which of the tribes they'll be like. Jesus, what would he do? He would remind them that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all and that in order to even inherit the kingdom of God, you have to become like a child. He's not saying that because children don't ever have rivalries. Believe you me, they have rivalries. The point is, children simply receive from their parents. Christ is the one who causes them to remember, but now the Holy Spirit will be the one to cause them to remember. Just as Christ's teaching was from the Father, so also the Spirit will reinforce Christ's message. This is where we see again an aspect of the the life of the Trinity. The Father has sent the Son on a mission and with a message. And the Son says, I'm going to ask the Father in order for him to send the Spirit, and the Spirit will remind you of what I have said. This harmony and unity in the Godhead is beautiful. The Father's sending of Christ is, re, is reinvigorated in the sending of the Spirit. He's there to continue the same ministry. At the end of Christ's discourse, he shows his departure to be both fitting to him as pertains to his glory and also beneficial to them. Again, you may have thought, well, wouldn't it be better for Christ to still be on the earth and with us in order to help the church not be in such dysfunction? And wouldn't it be just so much better if Jesus was here and we wouldn't have to listen to human preachers, we could just listen to Jesus? Um, 
we probably wouldn't benefit any more from that. And that's not downplaying Christ. That's just saying how immature we are as Christians. It's simply the case that Christ's ascension accomplishes two wonderful things. First, he retains or re-receives the glory which he had with the Father from the beginning, which he mentions in his high priestly prayer, which was shown at the cross and then received finally in the ascension. And also, Christ, as we sang about this morning, goes in order to mediate our life to the Father, to be for us a petition of grace before the Father's presence. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Again, that makes no sense in the natural mind. How can Christ simultaneously go away and also come? It's impossible unless it's done in the Spirit. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. One of the things that's helpful to understand here is Christ does not buy into this idea. He doesn't placate the disciples saying, if you really loved me, uh, you know, you would keep me for yourself. He says, if you love me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father. As much as Christ loves the company of the disciples, Christ's desire to be with the Father is far greater. And so it's actually a great grace to Christ himself to be with the Father. And so love does not seek its own, as Paul teaches us, but rather seeks its neighbor's best interest. And so if the disciples truly did love Christ, if they loved him with a pure love, then they would be loving the idea that Christ will go with the Father. For, for two reasons, for Christ's benefit and for ours. Verse 29, now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Uh, as I said, if they fully understood what was going to go on, they would not be mourning this. They would actually be rejoicing because it's for their benefit. Christ's ascent to the Father is God's final attestation of Christ's teaching ministry, and work. I say teaching, ministry, and work because I mean what Christ said in his teachings, what Christ did in healing the multitudes and casting out demons, and his work that specifically is his work on the cross in making an atonement. This is the culmination of the creed which we see in 1 Timothy 3.16 that, that uh, I can't quote the whole thing, but the, it ends with that he was taken up in glory. And that is the proof of our faith. Likewise, when Christ ascends, he not only receives glory in the presence of his Father, but also represents us to the Father. And this is where we understand the importance of the incarnation. Christ has taken on human flesh in order to be the head of the church, the head of the community of the redeemed. And after ascending to the Father, stands uh, before the Father, receives the kingdom, as Daniel tells us, and then takes his seat on the throne. After having made an atonement for sins, he sat down and then begins his mediatorial or intercessory role for you and for me. That's what we sang about this morning when we sang before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest. Now in that song, it's, a poet, it's poetically said whose name is love, but clearly that songwriter is talking about Christ. Christ is the one who lives and pleads for us. And that living and pleading for us began with, started with, and is continuing with asking the Father to send the Spirit into the world to bring about maturity in his church and maturity among the members of his church. 
This is what we wish to reinstate, a great view and a great love of the Holy Spirit and an honoring of his role and an understanding of his role so that we would not neglect those things which accomplish true spiritual piety, which is being removed from the world or keeping ourselves from being stained with the world and keeping ourselves devoted to Christ. This is what it means as we approach Ascension and Pentecost over the next two or three weeks for us to ask the Father once again to continue to send the Spirit into our lives, that we would be made like Christ, that we would be asked to join the mission that Christ himself said they were being sent on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son and his great teaching. We ask you that you would deliver us from complacency, that you would grant to us meekness and humble hearts, that we would be able to examine our lives in truth and that we would remove all pretense from approaching you. We, we ask you, God, that you would bring reality in our lives, that you would convince us of, of the places in which we are cold and dead toward you that we would understand that your grace is mightily pointed to us, that the Holy Spirit is constantly desiring to dwell with us and to make your life and your son's life real to us. We thank you for this wonderful privilege, which is the reason we were even made to have communion with you, that you would restore to us a value of that and that you would also cause it to come about. God, we know that we can't love you unless you love us first. And so even today, as those who have begun to walk after you, those who've be, begun to be remade in your image, God, we acknowledge our need. We ask you that you would give to us poverty of spirit that would allow us to see our need for you, Holy Spirit. We ask you, God, that you would reinvigorate our understanding of the work of the spirit, that we would rightly and wonderfully celebrate, anticipate, and enter into the remembrance of your ascension and the sending of your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.